Our call to worship comes from fairly early on in one of Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. He says this, I, that's Paul, planted the seed, Apollos watered the plant, but it was God that made the plant grow. The one who plants and the one who waters really do not matter. It is God who matters because he makes the plant grow. There is no difference between the one who plants and the one who waters. God will reward each one according to the work they have done. For we are partners working together for God. And now let us come to God in prayer. We pray together. God of all time, God before time, we thank you for the memories of time spent with your people, the church. For the people who made us feel welcomed and affirmed, who taught us in Sunday school or Bible class, who led the youth fellowship or the midweek meeting, who helped us to understand something of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Christ. And we thank you for the times when we felt we got it right, when our attempts at ministry and mission were a source of delight and fulfilment, when we dared to believe we had something of worth to offer to others, when we felt that our life together anticipated in some small measure your eternal reign. God of all time, God of this time, we lay before you the sad and the bad memories of times spent with people in your church. The people we failed to welcome or affirm. The people who wore themselves out with seemingly unappreciated service. The people we failed to understand or who failed to understand us. The people who could not or did not find hope and faith enough to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Christ. And the times we felt we got it wrong, when our attempts at ministry and mission were a source of disappointment or frustration, when we felt we had nothing much to offer anyone, when our life together seemed like an unending night in Gethsemane. God of all time, God after time, we ask you to help us make new memories of time spent with your people, the church. Help us to value each person and to know ourselves valued. Show us afresh what it means for us to live the life of the kingdom 
here and now. So that, though we will disappoint and be disappointed by one another, yet we may still journey on hopefully in the footsteps of Jesus as disciples of Christ and co-workers with God. Amen. Our first reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. From Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the people of the church in Thessalonica, who belong to God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be yours. The life and faith of the Thessalonians. We always thank God for you all and always mention you in our prayers. For we remember before our God and Father how you put your faith into practice, how your love made you work so hard, and how your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ is firm. And our second reading is taken from Romans chapter 5, verse 15 to 21. But the two are not the same. Because God's free gift is not like Adam's sin. It is true that many people died because of the sin of that one man. But God's grace is much greater. And so is his free gift to so many people through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. And there is a difference between God's gift and the sin of the one man. After the one sin came the judgment of guilty. But after so many sins comes the undeserved gift of not guilty. It is true that through the sin of one man, death began to rule because of that one man. But now much greater is the result of what was done by the one man, Jesus Christ. All who receive God's abundant grace and are freely put right with him will rule in life through Christ. So then, as the one Son condemned righteous acts, sets all mankind free and gives them life, and just as all people were made sinners as a result of the disobedience of one man, in the same way they will all be put right with God as a result of the obedience of the one man. Law was introduced in order to increase wrongdoing, but where sin increased, God's grace increased much more. So then, just as sin ruled by means of death, so also God's grace rules by means of righteousness, leading us to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And our third reading is from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 29. It is through faith that all of you are God's sons in union with Christ Jesus. You were baptized into union with Christ, and now you are clothed, so to speak, with the life of Christ himself. So there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles, between slaves and free men, between men and women. You are all one in union with Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, 
then you are the descendants of Abraham and will receive what God has promised. Grant us understanding. Amen. So this is the third of our short series in thinking about mission and our attention turns to probably the most famous missionary of all time, to the Apostle Paul. And as we look at what he has to say, we will find some elements that resonate with what we have already thought about and some elements that are distinct and different. As with our forays into the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, we will be guided to an extent by the thoughts of the missiologist David Bosch. I think most people have been here most weeks, but just as a quick reminder, we've already looked at two different ways we could think about mission. From Luke, the idea of mission as jubilee, a faith-inspired commitment to issues of justice, which finds its expression mostly in social action. And the greatest examples of those must be organisations such as Christian Aid and Tear Fund, who work in places of extreme need and will serve people irrespective of their faith or status in society. And then for Matthew, the idea of mission as being disciple-making, which is exemplified perhaps most well by such organisations as the Bible Society, who translate scriptures into different languages and, in fact, are finding new ways of taking that to cultures where literacy is not the way that language is expressed. So, for example, MP3 recordings of the scriptures. And also people like the Retreat Association, who offer places and spaces for those who need rest and refreshment spiritually. And now from Paul, we have what actually sounds a rather bombastic suggestion, it has to be said. The understanding of mission as an invitation to join the eschatological community. Sounds uh, suitably impressive for a Sunday morning, I think. Well, before we go on to think about that idea at all, I think it's helpful to have a little bit of background to the approach that Bosch adopts when he sets out to identify Paul's view of mission. And then, very briefly, to recognise some hints as to what might be seen as Paul's mission strategy. We can't say this was definitely Paul's mission strategy, because we can't interview him. But we can say this seems to be what Paul's strategy was like. Now, I'd have to say, when I decided I was going to use Bosch to shape our series... I didn't really think about it too hard. Excuse me, I've got ice again. Yes, I didn't think about it too hard. And I thought, when I got to Paul, I know what I'll do. I'll have some of those stories from Acts, because they're really exciting, and they tell me a lot about what Paul's mission strategy was like. But Bosch had other ideas, and actually, I think, importantly different ideas in how we might get a glimpse of Paul's take on mission. Rather than using Acts, which is actually Luke's take on Paul's missionary endeavours, he says, no, 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 let's let Paul's own words inform our thinking. 
Now, I apologise if this is going to offend anybody, but there are only seven letters in the New Testament that are universally accepted as authored by Paul. And it is these seven that Bosch identifies. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon, or Philemon. He counts 1 and 2 Corinthians as, as 1, I think, otherwise you get 8 rather than 7. But these ones, he says, these are the definite Paul letters. They cover a period of around about seven years. And these can speak for themselves and give us some hints and glimpses of Paul's understanding of mission, his strategy, his motivation, and actually how it began to find its expression in the lives of the little congregations that he, along with others, established in the early years. Sometimes it's good to remind ourselves that although the Gospels talk about events that happened before the things that the letters relate to, the letters were written a long time before the Gospels, probably 30 years before the first Gospels were written down. And so Paul's letters are at the same time as the events they talk about. There's an immediacy about them that there isn't in the Gospels. So let's start off then with something about the practical aspects of Paul's strategy. The very names of the letters straight away give us a clue. Rome, Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi. These were important regional centres with trade routes linking them to faraway places. Places to which rich and poor alike would be drawn. Places where people passed through carrying with them ideas and seeking new ideas. By planting embryonic Christian communities in these places, Paul could be fairly confident that the message he wanted to share would be carried along those same routes to yet more places. There's nothing random about this. Paul clearly knows what he's doing and how he's going to go about doing it. Location, location, location. That's the phrase nowadays, isn't it? It matters where you are. And actually, our location matters. It's no accident that we're here. Our forebears, 130 years ago, recognised an opportunity, a God-given opportunity to move to what was then the very edge of the city and plant a new congregation, knowing that with the existing roads and new stuff being built up, that good news could spread on. And of course it did. And we are still in a strategic location today, not the same kind of strategic as it was then, but still strategic. But strategy obviously has to be more than just about where we are but also about who is involved in that mission. Try not to get any ice this time. I wonder if you still have in your mind those words from our call to worship, which I took from the second letter to the church in Corinth. Paul speaks of people in the church as being his co-workers with God in the service of the gospel. In other words, in mission. 
In the translation that we heard, it was expressed as partners working together for God. Now, whether you want to use the language of partners or co-workers or colleagues, it doesn't really matter. But there is something about working together in mission. Despite what we might sometimes feel about him, Paul was not a one-man mission organisation. Rather, the records that we have show very clearly that he worked closely with a lot of other people, although there is some difference in how those relationships worked out. Are you listening carefully when Margaret read that first reading from us? I deliberately chose the opening of, of one of Paul's letters. Firstly, there is this inner circle, the people closest to him, who seem to have travelled extensively with him, at least for some of the time. So Barnabas, Silvanus, and Timothy. And then if we move out a little bit further, there are people to whom he explicitly refers as his co-workers, his colleagues, those who participate in his work. And that is a group which includes women and men. So, for example, just three of them would be Priscilla, quite definitely a woman, Aquila and Titus. These people he worked quite closely with and then seems to have left them to get on with what they were doing. And then there are those people that we might term the church representatives, people within each local church community who seem to have had specific work to do with Paul and with his closer co-workers. And this is when you start getting into complicated names. People like Epaphroditus, Aristarchus, Gaius and Jason. And of course, just in those names, we begin to hear something of the international flavour of the early church, because there are Greek names and Roman names mixing in with the Hebrew and Aramaic names. Although each of these churches was unique and operated autonomously, nevertheless, right from the start, there was a keen sense of interconnectedness, with each endeavouring to support the others in their times of need. If you read those Pauline letters, you will find references to collections from being sent from churches and the generosity of one church to another church. So people mattered and relationships mattered both within the local church and between the different churches. Different church traditions of churches express this differently, but the idea that the Uh, that mission is not just a job for one person or one group, but actually a complex network of both local and translocal connections is really important. The roles we each play are different. Paul to plant the seed, Apollos to water it, and so on. But there is an expression, expectation, sorry, that mission is a shared undertaking. You can't say it's that lot that do mission, or that lot that do mission, or that lot that do mission. It's shared. I think it's important to note that the model that we see in Paul shouldn't be seen as hierarchical. It can be, but I don't think that's helpful. I think it can be equally seen and more helpfully seen as horizontal, perhaps as a set of concentric rings. 
At the middle are those who are totally committed to the overall mission enterprise, who kind of have this sense of strategy and, and what it's about, who are surrounded and supported and encouraged by those whose participation is more localised and perhaps a little bit less full on. Not all are called to be missionaries, but all are called to the work of mission. When we read Paul's letters, we take it for granted that they're addressed to churches. But for the most part, we probably don't actually think about what that means. Rather, we just kind of think that church means something like what we have, don't we? A place you go on a Sunday and we sit in nice rows and sing hymns and somebody talks and we listen politely and so on and so forth. But actually, it wasn't like that all that long time ago. Once upon a time, there was no name at all for the gatherings of believers in Jesus. They just met to eat together, to pray together, to support and encourage each other in their discipleship as part of, well, probably the best word that we have nowadays is community. And somewhere along the line, they began to use the title Ecclesia or Ecclesia to identify themselves. And that's a Greek word and its origins refer to the meetings of free male citizens within certain Greek towns. So it was a kind of thing they saw, these gatherings of men who, who saw themselves as called apart to think and then to go back. And so the church began to think, yeah, that's not a bad model for what we're like. And yet the Christian ecclesia were very different from these gatherings of privileged men. They were called to be different, to be eschatological communities. See, I get the word in eventually. They were called to model in the here and now the hoped for, longed for, and much anticipated reign of Christ. They weren't privileged, learned societies. They were models of something to which they aimed Scholars have compared the Pauline Ecclesia in its local expression with four models of its own time. One is the Greek or Roman household, which would be a mixture of blood relatives, servants and slaves. One is the voluntary association, such as a guild of craftspersons. Another is the Jewish synagogue, a word that just means congregation or gathering but has a clearly defined spiritual purpose to it. And then the philosophical or rhetorical school. So that is more of the learned society, or um, sorry, it's more than a learned society or a debating club, though those are within it. But it's actually a group with a clear commitment to a specific ideological worldview. These uh, rhetorical schools and the discipleship schools of the first century... They were people who had a very clear sense of what they were about. Now, none of them is a perfect match for what the church is like or was like in Paul's time. But they've each got some hints that are helpful. And if we looked at Paul's writings, we would see how that such models and metaphors are, are employed by them. So a bit like a household, a bit like a family, 
a bit like a guild, a bit like a synagogue, a bit like a, a group of people committed to a worldview and to discuss and debate what that means. For David Bosch, the extract we heard from Romans is vital to understanding Paul's view of mission. The centrality of the Christ event, transforming the whole of human history and a clear commitment to Christ are not negotiable. Put in its simplest terms, there was something very wrong with the world that needed to be put right. And this was done once and for all by Christ. And because of how time works, there is a specific place in human history at which that occurred. Paul's realisation of that completely changed his outlook. And he was motivated by a mixture of gratitude, a concern for others, and an overwhelming sense of responsibility that he took this path that I honestly don't think any of us would envy. Mission for Paul was concerned with inviting others to join the community of believers in Christ and to model in the here and now something of how they understood or imagined that eschatological hope. Or, if I put it in everyday language, to live today the life we dream of for tomorrow. Now, I know I have banged on a lot about church membership of late, and there's a risk that you're all just going to stop listening at this point, but hey, I'll take that risk. I know as well I haven't always done that in the most helpful of ways, because we live in an age in which charity law and all that kind of stuff is very important, and it's quite easy for ministers, or this minister anyway, to get sidetracked into that kind of legal practical way of looking at it. That's not always helpful. But you see, if I read Paul properly, it seems there's an inescapable truth that commitment to Christ involves participation in what you might call the trial size version of the eschatological community that is the church, both the church local and the church global, universal. And that is marked by a public expression by saying, yep, I'm going to be part of this, as well as an ongoing lived expression in daily life. The short extract we heard from the letter to the church at Galatia is one that I certainly love. This image of a transformed community in which human categories of race and status and gender, well, they either vanish or they're just not important anymore. But there is a danger, I think, that we miss the context in which that happens. What Paul says is, when you were baptised, it is though you put on Christ like a new garment... And it is because of this 
that you are now all equal. It is because of this commitment to Christ that you have changed and these categories are no longer important for you. What I'm going to say next, I've wrestled with quite a lot. Should I? Shouldn't I? Well, like everybody, I have to be true to my conscience and my convictions. When this church was established, the founders made a conscious decision not to demand of potential members that they be baptised believers. And that was a pretty powerful stance to make. I can't go back and interview them, and actually I half wish I could, but I have a strong suspicion that that decision was based on the fact that 130 years ago, just about anybody who wanted to come along and join this new church would already have either been baptised as a believer or as an infant. I can't prove that, but that's my suspicion. Their stand which is not so unusual nowadays, but was very prophetic then, was to refuse to allow the mode of baptism to stand in the way of mission. And I absolutely wholeheartedly want to agree with that. For them, the faith commitment expressed in baptism would have been taken as read. This is where it gets controversial and you might not like what I say. I have a feeling that 130 years on, in a world where things are very different, this once significant stance has the potential, if not the reality, to morph into a disregard for the powerful symbolism and expression of commitment both to Christ and to his church that baptism makes. What distinguishes the eschatological community, as Paul understands it, and as I am convinced is right, is this wholehearted commitment to Christ and to his church. In the letters that Paul writes to Corinth and Rome, he uses the metaphor of a human body to describe the church. And I love that image I find it really helpful and really powerful and really challenging. It is because of the commitment to Christ and therefore to one another that the temporal categories of race, status, gender, whatever it is, become irrelevant. Of course, there are functional distinctions between eyes and ears and hands and feet. But it isn't better to be an eye than an ear or a foot than a hand, or a brain than a liver, or whatever it is. Each one is equally important and participates to the well-being of the whole. As he says, if one part hurts, the whole thing suffers. You don't stub your toe and laugh at it, do you? Paul's little churches, then, are to be kind of sample-sized things, This is a sample of the hope that inspires our faith. That could be really attractive or really repulsive to other people. But people are invited to share in this life, firstly as observers 
And then, hopefully, by deeper integration. The uniqueness of Christ is central. Wholehearted commitment to a local expression of that eschatological community is expected. And this life is then lived out in strategic locations where passers-by can't fail to notice it. That seems to me to be Paul's take on mission. If we believe that the God who loved all creation enough to enter it in Jesus, if we believe that the cross is God's way of setting right what's gone wrong, and will continue to do so till the end of time, then that has to transform the way we look at God's creation. If we believe, as a result of our faith, that one day, and I guess that will happen at the end of time, all creation will be reconciled and made new, then that has to inform the way we live here and now. Mission as an invitation to join an eschatological community sounds really rather pompous, quite frankly. But mission as an open-handed gesture that says, come and see. Come and share in this adventure of a lifetime. Be open to the possibility that you too will be so captivated that you, by Christ that you want to join in. That seems to me an attractive and hopeful model for us to add to our collection. Amen. Our prayer of intercession this morning has this very grandiose title, The Responsibility of Mothers and Those Denied the Joy of Motherhood. I'm uh, no particular uh, feeling about the responsibilities of mothers, but I know about the joys of motherhood. Let's pray together, shall we? Gracious God, on this Mothering Sunday, we bring you our prayers for all entrusted with the responsibility of motherhood. Loving God, hear our prayer. We pray for mothers the world over, recognizing both the joys and demands they experience the privileges and pressures, hopes and fears, pleasure and pain that motherhood entails. Equip them with the love, wisdom and strength they need. Loving Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for single mothers, bearing the responsibility of parenthood alone, struggling sometimes to make ends meet, and stigmatized by certain sections of society. Grant them the emotional, physical, and financial resources they need. Loving Lord, we ask you, hear our prayer. We pray for mothers who've experienced heartbreak, their children stillborn or seriously disabled, injured, maimed, or killed through accident or assault, struck down by debilitating disease or terminal illness. Comfort them in their sorrow. Loving Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for those denied the joy of motherhood, enduring the trauma of infertility, 
prevented on health grounds from risking a pregnancy or unable to establish a relationship into which children can be born. Help them to come to terms with their pain. Loving Lord, hear our prayer. And we pray for those who foster or adopt children, those who long to do so but who are denied the opportunity, and those who for various reasons have given up their children and who are haunted by the image of what might have been. Grant them your strength and support. Loving Lord, hear our prayer. We pray finally for those who long to discover their natural mothers, those who have become estranged from them, and those whose mothers have died, all for whom Mothering Sunday brings pain rather than pleasure, hurt rather than happiness. May your love enfold them always. Living Lord, hear our prayer. Gracious God, We pray for mothers and children everywhere. May your blessing be upon them. May your hand guide them and your love enrich them all. Gracious God, we ask you hear our prayer for we bring our prayer together and unitedly. In Jesus' name, amen. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us and with all people this day and every day.